Therapy Chat Podcast, episode 192. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today's replay episode is all about how trauma is held in the body and how healing happens through the body. My guest is the wonderful Lisa Ferens, who has taught me so much. I have a certificate from her advanced level two trauma training program, and I recommend her program all the time to people. In fact, personally know at least seven therapists who have gotten certified in working with trauma through her her program. And I know, obviously, there are many, many more, but I value it so much that I talk about it to every therapist I know who wants training in trauma, and especially if they're in the Baltimore area, because we're very fortunate that she's right here in our local area. So let's dive right into my discussion with Lisa Ferentz about healing trauma using the body. Therapy Chat Podcast wouldn't exist without the support of its listeners. If you'd like to become a member, please go to patreon.com slash therapy chat. By making a $1 per month donation, you can help Therapy Chat keep going over the long haul. Thank you for your support. Hi, welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Lisa Ferentz, who is a clinical social worker in private practice specializing in helping child and adult survivors of abuse and neglect. She's also a nationally known author, speaker, trainer, and consultant. Lisa, thank you so much for being here. It is my pleasure, and thank you for having me on your wonderful podcast. Pleasure is really all mine. So, Lisa, can you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself and your work? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I've actually been in private practice for about 32 years now, and I specialize, as you said, uh, in treating adolescent and adult survivors of uh, abuse and trauma and neglect. And you know what that then means is that there are so many coping strategies that survivors use, uh, including eating disorders and uh, other addictions and acts of self-mutilation, and often they struggle in relationships, and they can present with uh, experiences of depression and anxiety 
anxiety. So, you know, when you say that you work with trauma, you're also then working with a lot of those other issues and presenting problems. So that's a large part of what I do. And I also have an institute in Baltimore, Maryland. We're in our ninth year. I'm very thrilled to tell you. Mm-hmm. As, and you know about it because you're one of my my most um, stellar students. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> who've graduated from that program. So we offer certificate programs in advanced trauma treatment. And I'm really very proud of that because it's it really is state-of-the-art trauma treatment, meaning that we talk as much about bringing in expressive modalities and working with the right hemisphere of the brain as we do talking about the more traditional kinds of talk therapy. So there are uh, certificate programs in that. And then we just offer lots and lots of continuing education classes, individual single classes for mental health professionals. So that's a one of my loves and that takes up a good amount of my time, but it's quite joyful. And I do a lot of consulting work for clinicians, um, both in the United States and in Canada, who are working with complicated trauma cases, um, which is also great fun for me to do. And I have several books out and I'm working on the next two. So uh, a lot of great stuff. But as you know, as long as you're doing things that you're passionate about, you can do a lot, right? As you do. Yeah. I don't do as much as that, but um, <laughs> writing <laughs> two books at once. <laughs> yeah. One to balance out the other is how I think about it. <laughs> well, I, I'm... Um, uh, yes, I'm a huge fan of yours. And as you said, I met you through your trauma certificate program. And while I was there, I don't know if you remember this, but last spring, I remember we were in class for one or two days that week. And then two more days that week, I took a workshop that you led at the Psychotherapy Networker. Yes. I tell people this all the time. I don't know if I've said it to you, but after spending days with you in the same week, by the way, I'm sorry that you had to spend four days with me. That's a lot ah, <laughs> in was, one week. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. And that's the thing is that I was with you for four days and you never repeated yourself. You never told the same story. You, Your energy stayed high the whole time. And I learned so many techniques for working with clients who have trauma. And I'm a fairly experienced trauma clinician myself. So you were teaching me so many more things that I didn't know, even in all of those days, never repeating the same exercise. And I was just extremely impressed with that. It says a lot about the depth of your knowledge and the experience you bring to training. So thank you, Laura. And you, I know you are quite experienced yourself. So that really is a high compliment coming from you. And, you know, but as I said, I've been doing this work for a long time. And I, I, I realized very early on in the process how important it was for me to approach my clients with the mindset of really being a good student and really needing to learn from them. And um, I've been very, very blessed over the years because, you know, trauma survivors in particular can be quite, quite generous and quite gracious in terms of both letting you know when, when you're doing something that's effective and letting you know when you're screwing up. Mm-hmm. So um, I've, I've really have learned so much from, from my clients over the years. And, you know, it's important if you're in this field, it's important to read state of the art stuff and go to conferences. And, you know, this, I always say this is such a thrilling and exciting time to, to be a trauma specialist. Uh, but it's also difficult because we're just now beginning to make these incredible connections between trauma and what we're learning about the brain and the yeah. impact, you know, the impact that trauma has on the brain. And we're just beginning to learn about those more expressive modalities that, that really are so critically important. So 
you know, even though I've been in the field a long time, I too am constantly going to conferences and trainings because there's just so much new stuff out there, which also makes it fun, you know, and keeps it really, keeps it really alive and interesting for all of us in the field. That's true. It's such an interesting work to do and all of the new developments that are happening really make it even more exciting. So talking about your trauma certificate programs, Something that was really profound for me in the program was you taught us as clinicians to be checking in with our bodies during sessions. Right. Can you talk more about sort of working with the body in trauma therapy, both as for clinicians and with clients? Sure. I think it's such a great question that you're asking because it really is kind of the newest way that we have to both work with clients, as you suggest, but also to help us as clinicians really be able to be more mindful and more aware and track our own counter-transferential experiences. Because no matter how you know much of a veteran you are in this field, there's no question that there are lots and lots of very emotionally loaded moments that we have with clients. And we're certainly listening at times to very toxic and difficult trauma narratives. And so it's so important that we have what I call a dual awareness where we're both simultaneously aware of what's happening for our clients and asking them many, many times in the course of a session to pause and to really look within and to notice what they're feeling in that moment on their bodies. Because I think the body is such a critical compass and a guide for both the client and the clinician in terms of understanding, you know, are they fully present versus dissociative? Do they feel grounded? Are they aware? of their body? Are they aware of their surroundings? Um, Are they having a body memory, which can often happen when people are talking about trauma, which can then lead to, you know, again, feelings of dissociation, or it can create an exacerbation of of anxiety, or um, just a state of being flooded and overwhelmed. So it's really important that we're often asking our clients in the course of a session, not just how they're doing, but how they're doing in terms of the experiences and the sensations that they're feeling on their bodies. And at the same time, for the clinicians who are doing this really challenging and difficult work, we have to have that second awareness of right now, as I'm listening to this client disclose a very difficult, a very painful, very moving trauma experience, what's happening on my body? Am, am I grounded? Am I present? Do I have an awareness of my body? Um, and using our bodies as a way to be more grounded. So very simply, like just remembering as clinicians to put, to keep both feet on the floor. And I, I tell clients the same thing because, you know, oftentimes in session, if clients begin to get triggered or overwhelmed, they will kind of go into a constricted or a collapsed body posture. They'll often literally go into a kind of fetal position where they'll tuck their legs underneath them. And that's a really important indicator to the clinician that that client is really not fully present anymore. And so having the client pay attention to body sensation really can help keep them present and aware. And it can keep us present and aware. You know that one of the things I always say in the trauma program is that someone's got to be grounded and present at all times and it better be the therapist. Yes, I love that. Right? Because it's not always the client. Um, Now, you and your listeners may notice that as I talk about this, I say on your body 
what I re- what I mean is in your body. But Laura, one of the things that I learned from my sexual abuse survivors was that the phrase in your body actually felt quite triggering to them. Mm-hmm. It it had an association with invasion or penetration or violation of some kind. And so I've learned to to kind of make that less triggering by saying uh, what's happening on your body. Clients know, you know, that we're really talking about in your body. Yeah. Um, but but framing it as on your body, I have found is a little bit less threatening. And and just to be even more specific with you and with your listeners, what we're really asking our clients and ourselves to track is is what's called the vasovagal zone. So not to get technical, but if you start at the top of your head and you just notice and track what's the sensation in your forehead, is there tension, is it relaxed, what's happening with your eyes, is there tension in your jaw, and then you just sort of move straight down. What are you noticing in your throat? Is there constriction or tightness there? What do you feel on your chest? And really traveling all the way down to the pit of the stomach. We know that about 85% of what we feel emotionally gets housed in that zone. So that's really where we're wanting to bring our clients' attention and where we're wanting to have our own awareness in terms of tracking whether or not we're triggered and, and how forward and, and present we are versus how dissociative we are. The other reason why working with the body is so important is because people like Bessel van der Kolk, who's really one of the forefathers of, of you know, understanding trauma treatment in our field now, has been able to show through PET scans and functional MRIs that trauma is stored viscerally, meaning on the body, as well as visually. And that's part of why clients often will have flashbacks about their trauma experiences. And it's why they'll often present with what we call somatization, which means physical pain. So it's very, very common for people who have a prior history of physical abuse or sexual abuse to hold those experiences literally on their bodies. And the byproduct of that is that they have chronic migraines and they have a lot of GI and stomach upset and they have a lot of limb pain and and just incredible feeling of fatigue. Fibromyalgia is a really common diagnosis with folks who have experienced trauma. So it's for those reasons, it's important that we're really paying attention to the body because so much of their past traumatic experiences really get stored there and, and kind of stuck on the body. Wow, thank you for explaining that. For so many clients who've experienced trauma, when you ask what emotions come up when they're discussing something, oftentimes the, it's, I, there's nothing. I think it's a really great point that sometimes as therapists, when we ask throughout what they think or what they feel, they can get stuck and they're, and they're not able to articulate that. So if instead we're asking them, take a moment and notice, you know, is there any sensation anywhere on your body and, and really guide them you know, take them through that vasovagal zone. So are you noticing any tension in, on your face or in your head or your jaw, your throat? You know, what are you feeling on your chest and your belly? That's often a way into then finding the verbal narrative. So what you were really just talking about was what Bessel van der Kolk and Dan Siegel and other people are talking about as working from the bottom to the top, meaning starting with the body and then 
having that flow into verbal narrative and words rather than starting with words and hoping that that's going to connect to emotion and body sensation. So this is, as you know, this is a very different way to work with trauma. And in our field now, when people, agencies and private practitioners talk about doing trauma-informed care, that's really what they should be talking about when they allude to that. They're, you know, if they genuinely are doing trauma-informed care, it means that they understand the importance of bringing the body into the process. And, and also what that means is, is, and we all are guilty. We all did this in the old days, myself included. It's about no longer having a client do a 50 minute monologue about their trauma narrative in a kind of frozen, position, right? Yeah. It's actually having clients move as they talk about their trauma so that all that energy that's been um, sort of bound up on the body and truncated on the body can be literally released. So as hokey as it sounds, now those of us who work with trauma, when we're having clients share a painful experience, we're often having them stand up and walk in the office back and forth or move their arms or, and this is actually very spontaneous and natural. It's not, it's not imposing movement on the clients. It's really us watching and tracking how their bodies move. And then inviting the client to continue with that movement, to amplify that movement and make it even bigger and then attach words to the movement because there's, there's part of the trauma narrative is in that movement as well. So you've talked about working with trauma in the body or on the body mm-hmm. and, um, and using movement. Can you talk about how you use expressive arts in? Sure, sure, sure. So I had said a little while ago that what we know now is that trauma is stored viscerally on the body. The second place where we know that trauma is stored is visually. And so what that has taught us as trauma specialists is that one of the best ways that we can help our clients to reconnect with and reaccess experiences that have kind of gone underground, you know, for safety reasons. One of the ways that we can begin to gently help them reconnect with memory and emotion and experience is visually. And very simplistic art therapy-based strategies uh, can be a great way to open that door. So just to give you a couple of examples, if a, if you're sitting with a client and you're asking them to tell you something about their past and they say, you know, I, I know stuff happened, but, and I have this sort of feeling about it, but I don't really have words for it. That actually becomes a really nice opportunity for a therapist to introduce a more visually based modality. So inviting a client to think in terms of shape, line, and color, those are kind of the simplest ways to introduce art therapy into the session. I will often say to the client, you know, it's perfectly okay that that you can't really verbally talk about an emotion, something that you're feeling. Let's see if maybe you can visually depict it. And again, just using shape, line, and color, think about what color or colors that feeling might be. Think about the shape or shapes that might in some way, um, you know, illustrate the emotion that, that you're feeling. And it's quite extraordinary how, how easy it really is for clients to kind of take that ball and run with it. So just inviting them to draw emotion, inviting, inviting them to draw body sensation, uh, before they can kind of decode it and talk about it verbally. 
there are certainly lots of clients out there who don't feel comfortable with art and don't feel comfortable drawing. And that's a pretty normal actual, uh, actually, that's a pretty normal response. And so the other modality that I use a lot is collaging. So that's where we just have lots of different, different kinds of magazines in the office. And rather than having the client draw something, you know, which can be frustrating if a client doesn't feel like that, you know, that they're a good artist. I just literally have them look through different magazines and I invite them to choose images and words in the magazines that might, again, speak for whatever it is that we're working on, a memory, a feeling, uh, an experience that they had that they don't, maybe they don't yet want to talk about it, but they want a way of showing us some aspect of their narrative so that, so that frankly, we can be compassionate witnesses to their experiences. So collaging is really easy for clients. And then you have them cut out or rip out the words and the images and they can spend the whole session really doing this and deciding where they want words and images to be in relation to each other and then pasting them, you know, on, on paper. And then you've got this really concrete, tangible piece of work that not only in that session, but certainly in many subsequent sessions, you and the client can, can revisit and process. And it's, it's actually quite fascinating how each time a client, at least I find this anecdotally, that each time a client goes back and revisits a piece of art that they've done, they attach new meaning to it. You know, they gain more insight about it. And so it's, it's, it's a great tool that you can continually revisit. And the other um, modality that I use a lot is sand tray. I'm just such a huge, huge fan of sand tray work. And for people, for your listeners who, who are not familiar with it, it's, it's a big tray that literally has but it's very specific kind of sand. It's very soft. So texturally, it feels very soothing and, and comforting for clients. And then you have all kinds of different little figures, animals and people and objects. And you invite the client to create sand scenes. And that this becomes another visual kind of nonverbal way that they can either share a memory with us or process an emotion. And again, quite remarkable how deep clients can go in, in terms of interpreting once they've put the objects in the sand. And we're always curious about where objects are in relation to each other. I think that holds a lot of meaning for clients. The one important caveat, Laura, that I want to make about using any art based modality is the importance of not interpreting the art for your client. Mm. You know, but because art is such a projective thing that when, when clinicians, you know, really well-intended clinicians begin to go down that road of interpreting their client's art, they're actually giving the client information about them, about the, (laughs) about the clinician, because it's so projective. So all that matters is just inviting the client to be curious about the meaning that they want to attach to the art that they've created. And that's what you go with, not you know, the clinician's interpretation. In, in many of the trainings I give, I show a lot of clients' artwork and it's always amazing how I can have 50 clinicians in the room and I can get 20 different interpretations of the mm-hmm. same piece of art, you know, because it, because it really is going through everybody's subjective filter. So I think that's, that's a, an important word of caution if, if, uh, if you're going to incorporate these modalities, which I hope you do because they're so powerful and I think they're really quite necessary given that so much of the trauma is stored visually, it's important to really let the client take the lead and let the client interpret at their own pace, in their own way, the meaning that they want to attach to their work. 
Thank you for adding that point because I know it's very tempting to be like, oh, that's your dad. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> what exactly. you're really saying as the therapist is that's my dad. And <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's it. That's it. And, you know, sometimes we're right. Sometimes the work is obvious, but I have to tell you more of the time we're wrong. Mm. And, and that's why it's so important that we really just you know, get very humble about it and, and, and truly trust that the interpretation that the client is giving us, that's the one we want to work with. That's the one we want to go with. Absolutely. So Lisa, another thing that I admire about you is your perspective on borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how you understand that? Sure. I think, and, and for some of your listeners, you know, this may completely resonate. And I also really respect that for some of your listeners, particularly clinicians out there, what I'm about to say might feel very dissonant, uh, because it's really not the mainstream perspective that I'm, that I'm going to offer. And I believe very, very strongly that borderline personality disorder is a death sentence in the mental health field. I, I think it automatically puts a glass ceiling on the extent to which the therapist believes the client can get better. And it often even creates a lack of hope and some pessimism for, for more educated clients who hear that diagnosis. And I think even they understand all of the connotations that go with it. And unfortunately, in our field, those connotations include things like this is going to be a very difficult client. He or she is going to be very high maintenance. They're probably not going to get that much better. They're going to be very high risk. They're probably going to do a lot of, you know, suicidal gesturing and acting out. And, you know, therapy's not going to get very far. And right from the get-go, I, I really think therapists, whether they're conscious of it or not, when they're presented with a client who has that diagnosis, already the level of, of hope and optimism has dramatically decreased. So what I believe instead is that anybody who has the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder is in actuality, a trauma survivor. And, and Laura, what I, what I find amazing, cause I do this little experiment in the United States, in Canada, and, and in England, where all the places where I train, when I ask, you know, the audience of clinicians, tell me honestly, what's your reaction when you're, when you're presented with a case and you're told she's borderline or he's borderline? And it, there's a universal reaction of, literally sitting back in their chairs, shaking their heads no, uh, uncomfortable laughter, and basically people saying, you know, I don't want that client. I'm, I'm booked. I'm busy. You know, I don't have room in my caseload. When I then say to audiences around the world, well, if you got a phone call and you were, you were asked, could you please, please help this client? I know you could help her. Please make time in your practice. She's a trauma survivor. The shift in response is so palpable. You see people very spontaneously. It's quite amazing. Clinicians very spontaneously putting their hand over their heart. Mm -hmm. They nod their head. Yes. You see this warm smile. And I think it's because in our field, trauma survivor evokes a very empathic and compassionate response and borderline evokes a, an almost angry, certainly frustrated response. And so in fairness to clients and, and frankly, in fairness to therapists as well, because you don't want there to be a glass ceiling on, on the extent to which you believe a client can heal. I tell the folks that I train, when you hear borderline, think trauma survivor, mm -hmm. 
Because really, that's what it is, right? We know that with borderline, so much of what drives that diagnosis is the ambivalence that they feel about attaching both to their therapist and, and to other people in their lives. They, they desperately want the connection and the attachment. And yet, their template for relationship is getting close equals getting hurt. Right. Because, right? Because that's really what happened to them. So that's, that's the dance of attachment, of, of traumatized attachment or disorganized attachment that manifests in what we call borderline. But I just think we'll get so much. I know that we get farther with these folks when we can hold that compassion that we seem to just very inherently have when we talk about trauma and when we talk about insecure attachment. And so, Yes, I travel around the world, you know, on my soapbox, really discouraging mental health professionals from stamping that diagnosis on their clients' charts. I agree with you. I tell people that borderline personality disorder is a diagnosis that just describes behavior of people who experience childhood trauma. Good. You know? Good. Yes. So right. why not just give the diagnosis that actually fits yeah. The, yeah. the cause rather than just the behavior that results from something terrible having happened so long before? Exactly right. I have, I had a colleague who years ago, I wish I could remember her name to give her credit for this. I, I thought this was a brilliant way in which she distinguished it after she heard me say what I just said to you. She raised her hand in the audience. She said, I think what you're saying is that we should think about borderline as an adjective and not a noun. And, you know, I, right. I thought that was such a brilliant way to, to conceptualize it because if we think about borderline as noun, then we're saying this is who the person is as opposed to what you just said, which is this is a, a shorthand way in the mental health field to talk about some of the behavioral manifestations of trauma rather than she is borderline, right? Which becomes a sort of all encompassing uh, identity and diagnosis for the client. So yeah. Thinking of it behavioral, I think makes, makes a whole lot more sense. Yeah. And I have, I've definitely had the experience of clients coming to me who had been in therapy before and they say, you know, my other therapist said I have borderline traits. What do you think? And I say, well, the first thing I think is how shameful they seem to feel about yes. being told that. Yeah. You know, how shaming that is. And I, I just say what I said before, like, I don't, I don't diagnose, I don't use that diagnosis. It just doesn't resonate for me. I work with people who've experienced trauma and, you know, when you feel powerless, you find other ways to communicate, you know, it's not, I'm not going to label people with that diagnosis. So I love that you're out there telling people that because I feel like it gives me a little more <laughs> oomph in <Yes>. my... <laughs> Yes, listen, you, you, said. <laughs> you have it right. You have it right. And, and I, I love that you get it. You know, and even if we uh, just educate one clinician at a time, yeah. I, I think it, I think it makes a really significant difference. I really like that you pointed out the shame that's associated with that diagnosis. I think you're a hundred percent right about that. And you know me and you know my work. So much of the way that I work is about depathologizing yes. clients. I'm so interested in what's right with them rather than what's wrong with them. And uh, I think borderline absolutely does shame and it does keep the, the focus on what's wrong with the client. And I know you and I work in very similar ways and we're both very interested 
in really assessing for a client's resiliency and their strengths and their creativity. And, you know, borderline doesn't let you do that. You know, yeah. it, 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 it really keeps the focus in a very pathologizing place and in a very negative place. And so, yeah, you get it. I get it. And, um, hopefully for the folks who are listening, you know, they can take this to heart. It, I'll tell you, it really makes a difference for us as therapists because when I let go of that, and again, in 32 years, I've never once given anybody that diagnosis and I never will. And trust me, there are tons of psychiatrists who could look at my caseload and said, oh, say you've worked with a hundred borderlines in your career, but I've never, ever once given that diagnosis because I don't want to in any way put a ceiling on my sense of hope about the client. You know, I, I don't want to buy into the idea that, well, there's a limit to how much better this client can really get because in terms of therapy and the efficacy of therapy, what we know is it's really not so much about the treatment modality. It's really about two things, the therapeutic relationship and the hope that the therapist brings into that process. And so if a particular diagnosis is going to in some way compromise the therapist's sense of hope, you know, nobody benefits from that. Exactly. That's so well said. So um, your books. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know all of your books. I'm thinking about, I believe, your most recent books about working with self-destructive behaviors. Right, right. So currently I have two books out that I, I, I'm very, very excited about because they're not, they're different. They're not kind of, again, the mainstream thinking about how to work with self-destructive behavior. So the first book that I wrote that's now in its second edition is called Treating Self-Destructive Behavior in Trauma Survivors, A Clinician's Guide. And really much of what you and I were just talking about is the underpinning of that book. It's a very strengths-based, depathologized approach to working with any form of self-destructive behavior. And again, that includes things like eating disorders and, and acts of self-mutilation, uh, any addictive behavior, addictive relationships. So it's this, it's look, it's really reframing those behaviors as a form of communication, as a way that clients attempt to self-medicate and cope. And it is in no way connected to borderline personality disorder. It is connected to trauma. Mm -hmm. So that's the book that I wrote for clinicians. And in fact, the last third of that book, Treating Self-Destructive Behavior in Trauma Survivors, is really about self-care for the clinician. Because as you well know, these can be very complicated and, and complex cases. And it's so important that clinicians don't lose sight of the need to do a whole lot of self-care when they're working with people who are doing you know, behaviors that actually can feel scary to the clinician. You know, you have a client who comes in and says, I'm cutting. Understandably, that can evoke anxiety and, and fear and, and upset on the part of the therapist. So we need to, again, it's kind of cool, Laura, this brings us full circle, mm -hmm. that we need to be very grounded. We need to be very present as therapists when we work with those issues. And uh, we need to do a lot of self-care. So that's the book that I wrote for clinicians. And then... Two years after that, I wrote uh, the book that was really kind of my dream book, and that was 
a workbook called Letting Go of Self-Destructive Behavior, a workbook of hope and healing. And that's for lay people. Now, those two books are actually meant to be sort of companion books to each other. Um, so they're cross-referenced a lot for the clinician. But the the book Letting Go of Self-Destructive Behavior, I also wrote for for folks who might not have access to mental health resources. You know, there are millions of people in more rural areas who cannot, I mean, the closest mental health professional is 100 miles away. And so I really wanted to write a book that could give folks the opportunity to depathologize their destructive behaviors, help them make sense out of their behaviors, help to connect their behaviors to a prior history of trauma, abuse, neglect, or some kind of pain narrative that I think has happened in their lives, and then give them lots and lots of hope. Um, give them lots of strategies, concrete tools and strategies to help them regulate and self-soothe in ways other than doing their self-destructive behavior. So um, it's been very exciting, actually, because the feedback is just very humbling and very wonderful from people all around the world who, who are using the workbook and, and, and say, you know, for the first time, I, I've let go of my shame, which you and I have talked about is so important. Mm-hmm. And um, I fe- you know, here's the thing that I often say to family members, as well as to folks who are struggling with self-destructive behaviors, you actually cannot expect a person to give up their self-destructive behaviors until you give them new tools and new ways to accomplish accomplish what their eating disorder was doing for them, you know, or what getting high or, or, uh, or cutting was doing. Because the truth is, even though it's, sometimes it's hard for, for significant others to believe this, people do these behaviors because they get something from the behavior. So in order for them to really let go of the behavior, we need to give them other ways to, again, self-soothe and regulate and, and communicate their pain narratives. And that's what this workbook does for them. So thank you for allowing me to talk about it. It's something I'm very excited about. And people can get those books either on Amazon. Um, I also, if it's okay, I want to let people know about my website because there's a lot of free resources there. Yes, please. Including access to my two books. And it's just very simple. It's just lisaferrance.com. So I'm going to spell it because I know Ferrance sounds weird on the radio um, or over the air. So it's L-I-S-A and then it's F as in Frank, E-R-E-N as in Nancy, T as in Tom, Z as in Zebra. So lisaferrance.com. And people can, for free, they can access my blogs. They can access archives of my radio show. They can certainly access the books. So yeah, we want people to have resources. And that's why I love what you're doing too, you know, is it's, you understand it's so much about educating, right? Because that's what takes away the shame. That's what gives people back a sense of hope. And so the more resources and tools we can give people to educate them that what they're doing makes sense and what they're doing probably is connected to unresolved pain or trauma. And that as they work in the direction of resolving that pain, a lot of the other quote symptoms, which I, for me are really creative coping strategies, but a lot of, a lot of those symptoms that, you know, cause shame and create other problems begin to dissipate. So we, we want to give people lots of tools to educate them. Yes. And I imagine it's very empowering for someone to find that workbook and see a different understanding of, oh, I'm not, you know, you know, so often people who've experienced trauma, um, when they contact someone for therapy, they'll say, you know, I just really think something's wrong with me. And I think trauma makes you feel that way. So right. for people who don't 
have access to therapy or they're not ready to reach out yet to pick up your workbook and see that, oh, like this makes sense. I'm not weird. Like this actually, what I'm doing makes sense. And there's a way to find something maybe more effective that I can do that will really sort of meet the need that I'm trying to meet. You know, well said, exactly. And I think what happens for folks who are doing self-destructive behavior, and again, this is something that we all have to really be sensitive to and respect and understand is that in the short term, those behaviors work, you know, in, in the short term, there's, there is an immediate sense of relief. There is a distraction away from other pain. There is, um, the experience of numbing. There is the release of endorphins, which are actually opiates, you know, that our brains release that make us temporarily feel better. But in the long term, See, that's not the end point, right? The end point then is going to be guilt and shame and anxiety and fear about, you know, my family's going to be mad at me or my therapist is going to fire me or yeah. I, pro- I promised myself I wouldn't do this again and now I've done it again. So, you know, it's it, the stuff that they're doing does work in the short term. It's just the end game always is a place of guilt and shame, feeling worse about themselves, which actually then sets them up to keep doing the self-destructive behavior because when you hate yourself, it resonates to hurt yourself. So we want to give them tools that, that accomplish what, you know, cutting accomplishes without that end point of guilt or shame. That's the difference. Yeah, I love that. And for clinicians, the book really is... I think when clients are cutting, sometimes clinicians can feel really worried and overwhelmed and not know, how do I make this person stop? How do I make this person stop? You know, and um, with your book for clinicians, I think that there's a kind of a like light in the darkness there to help us understand. Yeah. You know, first of all, it's not me trying to make someone stop doing something. It's understanding the behavior and helping that client understand and find better ways to cope. Exactly. It's a great point you're making because I I think, again, folks who are working with these behaviors uh, get anxious, get intimidated, get worried. And you're right. I think what happens in therapy is that the agenda becomes the therapist and not the clients that, you know, from their own place of anxiety, the therapist can get actually pretty aggressive Mm -hmm. about, you know, sort of quote, forcing the client to give up behaviors. But again, if they're, if they're making, you know, I'll only see you contingent upon if you stop doing what you're doing sooner or later, some other self-destructive behavior is going to pop up because you've neglected to give the client other resources, other tools, uh, other ways to, um, you know, to be calm and to self-soothe and, and, and to work through your trauma. So yeah, the, you know, just sort of forcing people, which is why just as an aside, I mean, I know you, you know this about me, but I, I'm very opposed to standard safety contracts because I think they set up power struggles between the therapist and the client and they don't really work. I mean, they really don't work. I can tell you anecdotally years and years and years ago when I was trained to do standard safety contracts and, you know, clients would very reluctant, 
reluctantly and begrudgingly sign them. And then they would come into session the next week and say, oh, guess what? I cut myself three more times last week. And that's all about a power struggle that I inadvertently created by forcing them to sign something that, you know, they were not ready to sign and didn't resonate for them. So in my book, I give clinicians an alternative to standard safety contracts so that, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not leaving them without a resource. I'm just saying, you know, forcing your, your clients to sign something, it just, it really doesn't work. And I've gotten so much feedback from so many clinicians around the country that, that really, echo that idea that, yeah, you know, you're right. Standard safety contracts really don't work. Yeah. Yeah. And it's nice to know that with your books, that there are some other ways that maybe feel better to the clinician and certainly feel better to the client. Yeah. Yep. That's the goal. Yeah. So Lisa, what other programs and trainings do you have going on that you want people to know about? Um, I want people to know about our institute, which again is in Baltimore, and um, it, that gives CEUs to clinicians, all mental health professionals who are either in the state of Maryland, in Washington, D.C., in Virginia, and West Virginia. And one of the really fun things is that we offer really good ethics trainings. I know that sounds like an oxymoron to say that <laughs> that ex- ethics trainings can be fun, but we really do make it fun. Um, we bring in a lot of clips from movies and TV, uh, episode, uh, shows like The Sopranos and In Treatment, and those become fabulous teaching tools, frankly, to, to, to talk about what not to do, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> as a therapist, because, you know, psychotherapy is is often depicted you know, in such negative ways and and inappropriate ways. So our ethics classes, you know, we get wonderful feedback that they're really, really fun. I think all the trainings that I'm very, I cherry pick my speakers. They're, they're just phenomenal teachers as well as being excellent clinicians. And so I do want people to, to check out the, the Institute. And again, through my website, lisaferens.com, they can, uh, that, that will take them to a calendar of all the continuing education that we offer at the Institute. And I also do provide a lot of consultation to therapists who are working with more complicated cases. And those might be cases that involve, as we've already talked about self-destructive behavior. Uh, that might include cases of DID, dissociative identity disorder, because those certainly can be complex and challenging cases. And that happens to be one of my areas of expertise. So I love doing the consulting work. It's great. It's great fun. Again, on my website are all the ways, my contact information and my email address. So people can access me if they, if they just want, you know, another sort of objective pair of eyes in terms of managing some of their more difficult cases. And I don't know. I'm, that's enough, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, um, I would like you to say that you have the trauma certificate level one and trauma certificate level two programs so people can know in addition to your, sure. you know, individual stuff. Right, right. So, and again, Laura is one of our best examples of, uh, of a graduate, of a grad. Truly, I really mean that. I, 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 I remember you so well and I remember the insightful questions that you asked throughout the trainings. And um, so, yes, we have level one, which I am, I, I've created and I'm the course master for that, for that. And it's nine classes over four months. So it works out to be about twice a month. 
And we also have then level two, which where I bring in uh, other experts, an art therapist and somebody who has tons of experience with psychodrama and somebody who has over 30 years of experience doing sand tray work and movement. And I do two-day training in parts work and visualization and guided imagery. And level two is great fun. It's, it's very, very ex- highly experiential. And so for, for people out there who are working in agencies or working as private practitioners, and you understand that now in our field, there really is this push to do, quote, trauma-informed care. I can tell you with, with assurity that these certificate programs really, really embrace, fully embrace that concept of trauma-informed care, teaching you how to work bottom-up, teaching you how to incorporate the body and the expressive modalities, helping you to understand in very simplistic and straightforward ways the impact that trauma has on the brain. Um, putting trauma, putting our clients into a family of origin context so that we really trace both the development and as well as the impact that trauma has on development for our clients, you know, as they go through the developmental phases in life. So I'm very proud of it. And I've graduated close to 700 clinicians now. Yeah. And there's, you know, I, I keep hearing, I, I don't know that I knew this necessarily, but I do keep hearing from, from people out there that there's not a lot of programs across the country, mm. you know, that, that have this kind of focus on truly doing trauma-informed care. So I'm very proud of that. And I'm very delighted that there are over 700 folks out there who are talking the talk and walking the walk and, you know, doing the work in a way that, that really brings true healing to, to clients, because we do have that responsibility, you know, to do the work in a way that is safe. We need to understand how to how to contain clients and not flood them, not emotionally overwhelm them. Uh, we need to know how to incorporate working with the body. We need to understand the impact that the trauma has on them developmentally. And so, you know, that's our obligation as, as trauma specialists. And the more we do that, the more effective the work is and the, the, the more safely the work unfolds for our clients. And, uh, you know, m- my passion is making sure that trauma therapy does not re-traumatize. And I think that we owe that to our clients to make sure that what we're doing is not re- in- inadvertently, certainly we would never intentionally, but inadvertently not re-traumatizing our clients. Yeah. And I can attest that the trauma certificate program, the level two that I took is top notch. And I heard from everyone who was in level one, how wonderful that was too. But also there's a huge number of CEUs for each level. Yes, 54. So there you go. You get, you get more than two years worth of CEUs yeah. in four months. You're right. And, and listen, I, I, you know, clinicians really like that because our time is limited. And, um, my feeling is that, you know, rather than just grabbing CEUs wherever you can, if you can commit to a program that really gives you a lot of depth and at the same time gives you lots and lots of CEUs. I, yeah, that's that's a win-win for clinicians. You know what's really cool, Laura? This has happened um, particularly this semester. We had, not only did we overfill the amount of students. Oh, I, that's great. Because I really do try to keep it somewhat intimate. So not only do we have over 40 students, but I had a waiting list of 27 additional wow. 
clinicians right. So I could have had 67, which I don't do because again, I want to keep it intimate. But the reason why that's happening, and I'm really, really thrilled about this is because I'm seeing this wonderful trend where supervisors are sending their entire staff. Oh, um, that's great. And I love that because I think that that when an entire staff comes and gets this kind of training, it truly changes the culture of the whole organization. And so that's kind of the newest trend that I'm really, really thrilled about, that it's not just, you know, one brave soul who comes to this program and then comes back and, you know, kind of speaks a different language in a way, mm-hmm. right, from the rest of their colleagues. But this semester, I've got two wonderful agencies and they've each brought, one has brought 14 staff and the other has bought, brought 10. And wow. it's completely changing the culture of how they're working. So I love that. I'm very excited about that. And so I do encourage supervisors and folks who run agencies to really consider making that investment of, you know, it doesn't be all at the same time, but kind of over time, because, you know, I'm going to be doing this till I'm 95. I'm I'm not going anywhere. I hope so. (laughs) So allowing, you know, many, many of their clinicians to, to go through the program, because then it really does, again, completely change the culture of how they're working with their clients. That's amazing. Thinking about how if an agency is, you know, focused on wanting to become trauma informed, instead of just sending one supervisor and then hoping that they'll be able to teach, you know, everybody who works under them, just bring in the whole group. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's a good model because so much of what we do is experiential that even when you have, a, and I know people do this and it's fine, mm-hmm. you know, the supervisor comes in and then they go back and report what they learned. But the, what they're missing, what the rest of the group is missing is is just the experiential piece of it. So Because I think learning ha- can happen on many, many levels. So it's not just talking about an art therapy technique. It's having the chance to to play with that technique in the program so that you can really experience firsthand how this works and why it works. And um, so that's something that you have to be in the program, obviously, you know, Mm -hmm. to to really get. Yeah. Some of the things that we learned in the program, I remember thinking, oh, I've heard about this activity before, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, this is kind of basic. And then as I did it, I had this profound experience and I'm like, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And that's what we hear over and over. You know, it's, it's like when you, when you're willing to kind of access that creative part of yourself and, and really participate on a deeper level, you, you just get it on such a deep level. And then you can communicate it differently when you bring it back to therapy. You know, when you, when you kind of hold your client's hand through that process of working creatively, um, you just, you get it as a clinician because you've, you've done it. You know, yeah. it's, it, it's not just from the neck up, right? Exactly. And again, clients appreciate that. They say, you know, I know you can take me there because, you know, you've done this. Like yeah. when yeah. we talk about, you know, I'll say I tried this new technique and it was really amazing. I think it's going to be really powerful and, you know, sort of being a little vulnerable with them. And then they're like, you tried it. I'm willing to try it. And, and then they'll have this great experience. Right. I, I really like what you're saying. It, it's sort of like you have to endorse it first, <laughs> right? And then the client will find the courage, you know, to to try it as well. Yeah, you're walking with them. Yeah, yeah. Well, Lisa, it's been such a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you so much for giving me your time. Oh, it's my, listen, you're a wonderful interviewer. You, you make Thanks. it so easy. <laughs> 
So thank you. And thank you again, Laura, for what you're doing. I, I think this is wonderful. And I hope, you know, millions and millions of people listen to all the podcasts that you've done because Ooh, you have, a, yes, you have, <laughs> you have a lot of wisdom and you've got a lot to offer and a lot to share. So, um, I, I just, I, I just hope that this keeps unfolding and, and, you know, gets amplified a thousand times over. So thank you for this wonderful contribution that you're making to our field. Oh, thank you, Lisa. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Just another reminder that if you'd like to become a member of Therapy Chat, supporting the podcast while receiving fun member perks and being able to communicate with me one-on-one, go to patreon.com slash therapy chat. If every subscriber donated just $1 per month, Therapy Chat would be able to keep going strong indefinitely. Thanks so much for your support. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.